So evolution continues, biological evolution continues. And it proceeded in terms of the brain, essentially in three stages. Um, people can overdo this. I think some people have gone a little overboard with this whole reptilian brain, you know, monkey brain, caveman, cavewoman brain, et cetera, et cetera. That said, it's, you know, there's a useful simplification here. So we have the brain stem, more the insect reptilian brain. We share about 20% of our DNA with bananas. So we share a lot of DNA with mosquitoes and fruit flies, okay, let alone, you know, mice and rats and then coming up, you know, wolves and monkeys and other people. Okay. So anyway, as the brain evolved in these three basic stages, uh, three motivational systems emerged in the brain. And this way of thinking I have found increasingly is a very useful organizing structure um, in, in the way that it helps us appreciate that as the brain evolved, first the focus was on avoiding harm. You know, eat lunch today, don't be lunch today. Avoid those sticks. That's more the brainstem focus. And then as more mature reptiles developed and then definitely mammals and birds, there was more capacity to energize in a more nuanced way. That's the development um, also of the sympathetic wing of the nervous system or the second branch of the vagus nerve. If you know Stephen Porges' polyvagal theory. That, so anyway, the second branch controls sympathetic activation, revving up to go get carrots. You know, a crocodile has kind of two, has two speeds, stop, start. Right? Not very nuanced in terms of approaching reward. But mammals and birds are much more you know, kind of adept at approaching reward. And then um, also with mammals and then certainly with primates and very much with humans, we have the third system developing, which is attaching to us. Okay? So we have avoiding, approaching, and attaching as systems. Uh, those systems are hardwired in us. You know, the brain of a Buddha has these three systems. Uh, our, our own brains, on a very good day, have these three systems. They're rooted originally in anatomy, but really they accomplish uh, their mission, if you will, uh, functionally by using all of the brain to accomplish their purpose, avoiding harm, approaching reward, and attaching to us. Okay, These systems basically operate in one of two modes. The responsive mode, which is their default setting when a person's not disturbed or an animal's not disturbed. Um, and that's pretty good. So in terms of those three systems, in the responsive mode, the default setting, you could think of it as calm, contentment, and caring. In other words, in terms of the avoiding system, the lizard that's, well, you know, that's calm and unthreatened, or that's unthreatened is calm. The lizard that's pet is calm. All right? The mouse that's fed is contented, okay? And the monkey that's hugged is caring, in a sense. Got that, what I'm doing so far? Okay, that's kind of nice to appreciate that our resting state, the natural state of the brain, is a good place. The problem is we also evolved hair trigger mechanisms that drive us from home, right? At the cough of a tiger or lion in the woods, or these days, a frown across the dinner table. And then these three systems, avoiding, approaching, and attaching, kick into their reactive mode, distinct from their uh, undisturbed responsive mode. And in this reactive mode, we have, in terms of, the, to use just a single word here, in terms of the avoiding system, we have hatred, 
broadly defined, which includes a lot of fear. We have aversion. In terms of the approaching system, we have um, greed, broadly defined. You know, grabbing on to reward or seeking reward, drivenness toward reward. And in terms of the reactive mode for the attaching system, when it's disturbed, when it's troubled, okay, we have in the word heartache. You know, you may know in Buddhism the traditional three poisons are considered to be greed, hatred, and delusion. All right, so I've spoken so far of you know hatred and greed. Um, I think there's actually a fourth poison, heartache. You know, it's interesting the Buddha didn't name it. Who knows why? That said, clearly I think the attaching system, you know, has functional independence and to some extent neural neurological, anatomical independence from those other two systems. And uh, in modern life, certainly, heartache, arguably more than greed or hatred, is where people suffer. Heartache broadly defined. Feeling unloved, feeling left out, not included, uh, feeling ashamed, feeling guilty, social emotions that relate to the attaching system, feeling inadequate, feeling less than, uh, looking for love in all the wrong places, you know, going down tunnels over and over again that have no cheese. Right. Heartache, okay? Narcissistic injury, to use that language from psychology, you know, that's the heartache poison, if you will. Okay, so in terms of this overall structure, um, while it's important to approach reward, get those carrots, it's actually more important from the standpoint of seeing the sunrise and passing on gene copies to avoid those sticks. In other words, if you fail to get a carrot today in evolution, you'll probably have a chance at a carrot tomorrow, attaining some necessary reward, food or mating opportunities, generally. On the other hand, if you fail to avoid that stick today, a predator, a natural hazard, or something really awful in your social band as a social animal, whack, no more carrots forever. All right? The legacy of that is what scientists call a negativity bias in the brain. At the very end of the slide set, I've got a slide that lists about a dozen recommended books, and then four slides worth, each about 10 papers each, of references. And in there, if you're interested, there are two good references related to this. One's called The Negativity Bias. The other one's called Bad is Stronger Than Good. It's not that bad is better than good. It's just that bad is stronger than good. Sticks have an urgency. You've got to deal with them right now, usually. Okay? And they have a lot of impact. The result, then, is a negativity bias that's embedded in our brain. And I'll get into some examples of how this works. And this is very relevant to personal practice and also for helping and caring for other people. In effect, because of the negativity bias, when a person is disturbed, when they feel at all threatened or alarmed or uneasy, the avoiding system which is most ancient, most primal, and most um, grounded in neurological structures that are automatic and fast and inflexible. They don't learn. There's not much neuroplasticity as you go down into the brainstem. Neuroplasticity, the capacity of the brain to learn from experience, uh, hopefully for the better and change itself, increases as you move up through the brainstem, through the limbic system, up into the cortex. A takeaway point here is that these ancient systems that are, that are really the deep, deep furnace of fear need a lot of training to change. They don't learn quickly. They need a lot of repetition 
to put it a certain kind of way, the inner iguana needs a lot of petting. Okay? To really, really learn over time, because there's not much neuroplasticity there. But over time, you can really pet the lizard and calm down that little fella. Okay. The problem is, when we get triggered, the avoiding system hijacks the approaching and attaching systems and uses it for its ends. For example, people then people who feel threatened get very goal-directed. They get very consumed with approaching defense. They start building up the defense department. They build more weapon systems. They put up more walls between themselves and, and others. And also when people feel threatened, at the individual level, and we've certainly seen it at the national level the last dozen years or so, they hold tighter to us, their tribe, their band, you know, and they tend to fear and dehumanize, exploit, and attack them. In the body, the negativity bias shows up in all kinds of ways. Uh, for one, equally intense stimuli that are, one is pleasant, one is unpleasant, the brain activates more for those that are unpleasant. Or think about the body itself. You can produce intense pain on the surface of the body everywhere, but intense pleasure in only a few parts of the body, like the mouth. Um, in the brain, when a negative stimulus is identified, the brain hyperfocuses on it. It's what I said previously. In the whole mosaic, when a threatening tile is identified, that's the one we see. We kind of filter out everything else because that's what we've got to deal with in terms of urgency and impact. And then the uh, body activates based on that negative stimulus. And it, uh, the record of it, the, the trace of it, as it were, is transferred into memory just like that. Once burned, twice shy. Right? We're one, we're one trial learners, as it were, when it comes to negative experiences. Because in the wild, if you do manage to escape that stick, and you, know, you got away from the tiger, or you dealt with that natural hazard, or you managed that aggression in, you know, in your primate band, whoa, you better remember that one. Remember well, because you may not get a second chance to go to school on this particular stick, right? So um, these uh, negative experiences then are fast-tracked into storage, and they're stored in memory systems in the brain um, in such a way that they can be retrieved very rapidly on anything that's remotely similar to that kind of bad thing. Unfortunately, which has a lot of implications, positive experiences, unless they're very intense or novel, typically have access to only plain vanilla memory systems, not specialized memory systems. And plain vanilla memory systems need information or experiences to be held in awareness for many, many seconds in a row to transfer from short-term memory buffers to long-term storage. The problem is we don't normally do that. Routinely, we might be having a positive experience, but then we're on to the next positive experience a few seconds later. It doesn't have time to transfer to long-term storage. In other words, it's dislodged, as it were, uh, you know, from short-term memory uh, platforms before it has a chance to sink down into long-term storage. The net effect of it is that positive experiences flow through the brain like water through a sieve, but negative experiences are caught every time. The net is that the brain literally is hardwired to be like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones, as a major example of the negativity bias. This has a lot of consequences. Um, I've talked about some of these. 
One of the consequences I haven't yet spoken of is that people on the average will work harder to avoid a loss of something than the work to gain that something in the first place. Uh, Daniel Kahneman, a psychologist, got the Nobel Prize for his work on this, which is called loss aversion or the endowment effect. In other words, how we endow what we have with extra value, okay, and we don't want to lose it. Another example is Seligman's work, uh, the psychologist uh, Martin Seligman, on learned helplessness. For example, take dogs whose limbic systems, in other words, whose emotional and motivational neurological uh, structures and processes are very much like our own. It's really easy to train dogs in helplessness. Half a dozen trials of inescapable pain, um, not catastrophic pain, but unpleasant pain. Half a dozen trials, they're helpless. They give up. There is a sense of futility to the point of absurdity. And then it takes many dozens of trials, sometimes over a hundred trials, to, to have that dog unlearn helplessness and learn that he or she can do something about their fate. To the point, literally, where experimenters in these studies would have, let's say, a metal floor to a pen with just a line down the middle of it, and the one half or the other half of the pen can be unpleasantly electrified. Uh, particularly after a light starts flashing and a bell starts ringing, maybe 10 seconds later. The dogs that are um, not trained in helplessness realize, after the first time it ever happens, that as soon as that bell rings, just cross over the line. No-brainer. Walk 10 feet, right? But dogs trained in helplessness literally need to be dragged by experimenters wearing rubber boots and rubber gloves across the line over and over and over again to learn that, oh, I can be a hammer, not just a nail. I can be the cue ball, not just the eight ball. I can do something about my fate. I can have some efficacy. Doesn't this have huge implications for humans? We are very vulnerable to learned helplessness. Very vulnerable. That's why I think it's so important to bring attention to where at least we can have some efficacy, can have some impact, even if it's only in our mind. You know, you may have my body, you don't get my mind. You know, you may have my White House, but you don't get my mind, right? Um, you know, and I think about uh, the teaching of Viktor Frankl, the founder of Logotherapy, Holocaust survivor, in his memoir about Auschwitz, in which he said, to paraphrase, that there were always a few people, at least, in those camps, which for me are like hell on earth, definitely tied for last place. It's like the worst possible thing. Um, anyway, he said there were always some people who demonstrated that most fundamental of human freedoms, the freedom to choose how we will respond to our circumstances. You know? So we want to, to me at least, really look for wherever we can, where at least we have some kind of efficacy, because we're so vulnerable to um, you know, a sense of helplessness. Okay? And then another uh, bullet point just to mention is the finding of John Gottman, research on couples, that typically a couple that will last has at least a five-to-one ratio of positive interactions to negative ones. In effect, a single negative interaction is as powerful as five positive ones. All right? And it's normal, isn't it? Let's say you've got someone you're in relationship with, maybe you work with them or you live with them, and 20 things happen with them in a day, nine are mildly, you know, 10 are mildly pleasant, nine are neutral, and one's unpleasant. What's the one you think about as you fall asleep? It's the unpleasant one, you know. That's the interaction that you go back over in the mind, typically. All right. So these are just some examples of uh, the negativity bias and its consequences. One of the consequences, of course, of the negativity bias is it primes stress. 
because negative experiences are stressful. And when we feel frustrated or afraid or rejected, let's say, you know, I've gone through the three systems here. If we feel afraid in terms of the avoiding system, we feel frustrated in terms of the approaching system, or we feel mistreated or discounted uh, or, or dismissed or rejected in terms of the uh, approaching system, that is stressful. That activates us. And there are a variety of consequences, you know, I've alluded to some of them, of stressful activation. Some of them include long-term health problems. There's a lot of research in the last number of years on the impact of stress, including everyday stress. You know, there's a wonderful book, Robert Sapolsky's Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. And as he points out, in the wild, you know, we evolved to handle bursts of acute stress, which then ended fairly soon. As he says, for a zebra in the wild, stressful experiences resolve quickly, one way or another. You know? um, but these days, we're trapped in low-grade chronic stress, driving in traffic, long hours of work, multitasking, bombarded with stimuli. Just getting bombarded with stimuli is stressful. Just watching the news, and they're talking, and then their headlines, and then there's this crawling ticker, and it's all about bad stuff you have no control over, and then the phone rings, and, you know, uh, and more emails, and the pager goes off, you know. Like, I see clients, right? I'm a therapist. You know, and their phone will go off. They turn their phone off, but every few minutes, there's a little bing, because someone else has called them or texted them. It's like, oh my God, I have all this stuff to do. Um, that's stressful, okay? And that has these kind of effects, both mentally and physically. Right? In particular, one of the consequences of the negativity bias is threat reactivity. It's where we are particularly reactive to things that may seem threatening. For example, in the wild, there are two mistakes you can make, right? On the one hand, you can think there's a tiger in the bushes, but really the coast is clear. The second mistake is to think that everything's fine, but something's really about to get you, okay? What's the cost of the first mistake? Stress, it's unpleasant, you're anxious, you have a phobia, you generalize anxiety disorder, okay? Right? What's the cost of the second stress? You know, no more sunrises, okay? Mother Nature wants us to make that first mistake a hundred, a thousand times over to avoid making the second mistake even once. And this hardwired generic tendency to be biased, to make that first mistake, to presume that life is threat level orange, right? That hardwired tendency is then exacerbated, intensified by personal temperament. Some people are more anxious than others by temperament. I'm mildly anxious by temperament. Um, then life experiences, let's say growing up in poverty or dysfunctional homes or being the victim of assault or having traumatic experiences, maybe health experiences happen, that intensifies this um, fear of threat, this threat reactivity. And then um, take modern life, which jacks us up. As soon as we have sympathetic nervous system activation, as soon as we start getting stressed, we become more prone to seeing threat out there. All right? And then also, you know, in a way that's certainly been uh, known uh, hundreds, thousands of times throughout history, various political groups will build up fears to gain or hold on to political power. Okay. And this threat reactivity then affects people at different levels, individually, as a family, as a company. Some companies are more threat-focused, 
or rather than others that are very opportunity focused. You know, interestingly, Apple, um, for whatever you think about Macs and Apple or whatever, bottom line, very deeply in their culture, they don't, they don't, they're not trying to figure out threats. They're just trying to build the coolest, mind-blowing stuff they can. It's been a pretty good strategy for them, I think, over the last, you know, 20 years or more. Anyway, one of the major results of, threat re of this threat reactivity, this bias, is cognitive. We tend to routinely overestimate threats and danger and risk. Some people don't. They need more worry. They need to worry more. You know, frankly, our son needs to worry more about <laughs> paperwork and oil in his car and not texting while he drives, stuff like that. Okay, sure. But generally, the tendency for people, on the average certainly, is to overestimate threats, underestimate opportunities, and underestimate resources inside themselves and in their world for both fulfilling opportunities and dealing with threats. And then these appraisals become the water we swim in without realizing we're wet. And information that disconfirms them, we kind of ignore, toss out, and information that supports and confirms them, we incorporate into them. We assimilate into these schemas, these views, these models, these paradigms of the way the world is. And then, of course, we end up with what the Buddha called delusion or ignorance. A major aspect of the, his third poison, delusion, um, not seeing the truth of things, is this kind of cognitive distortion. This has a lot of consequences. It's easy to go political with this. I'm going to try to steer clear of that. But I think the last 12 years or so have been a real teaching, haven't they? last 10 years, certainly, since 9-11, um, in uh, the impact of our vulnerability to feeling threatened, and then what happens when people or nations um, or groups um, feel threatened. Different things happen that are consequential and negative. I won't go through every bullet point here. Um, one that I think is important to appreciate is that when you're um, paranoid about paper tigers, you're, you're, you have fewer resources for dealing with real ones. You're flooded with bogus threats and over-investing in threat protection rather than dealing with real issues, you know, like global warming, for example, or the fact that we've got a country where one in five children is growing up below the poverty line, which is set very low, one in four in California. You know, a million kids go homeless every year in America. I mean, those create long-term, very serious threats, real tigers. Those are real tigers. but. We're distracted from dealing with them for all kinds of reasons, including getting, uh, as a nation, very invested in threat protection. Um, also, when we're threatened, we act in ways that create vicious cycles. You know, <clears throat> I feel threatened by you, so I build up my walls and acquire more you know, guns, metaphorically speaking. Suddenly, you start feeling threatened by me and start acting like a real jerk. And that confirms my mistaken opinion all along that you really were a jerk, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You know, vicious cycles, right? Also, as I said earlier, when we feel threatened, we play small, we inhibit the approach system, we dream smaller dreams, we muzzle our self-expression, and there's a tendency, of course, when we feel threatened to, as I said, over-identify with us, find some tribe to join for protection, and dehumanize fear and attack them. So poignant truth here. As I said, Mother Nature has developed fantastic strategies for keeping our ancestors alive in the wild. 
Paper tiger paranoia is a great way to keep monkeys alive, cavemen, cavewomen alive, humans alive, um, you know, mice alive, iguanas alive, mosquitoes alive, right? But it's lousy for quality of life, and it definitely gets in the way of spiritual practice. Okay, comments or questions so far? Yeah, please. going towards more and more is increasing physical pain in order for her to get her own sexual pleasure. Mm. Can you just sort of take all this for me and just mm. put it in that frame? Because it seems like a... Um, why does that happen? <laughs> so, a um, therapist who has a client in the sex trade who's finding, sounds like a woman, for herself that um, she's drawing, she's using pain more and more to um, arouse herself and perhaps climax. Um, what is that about, right? And in more than 25 words probably. Uh, but you're getting at a very interesting anomaly, which is the ways in which people keep doing things that hurt themselves or find pain pleasurable. I mean, and this is a very interesting territory. Why do people cut? You know, is, it, there's more to it probably than just the endorphin release of cutting. It's a complex thing. Um, what I, in trying to be succinct here and not overdo it about a particular, you know, situation, what I'd be wondering about is a general numbing, you know, and a reliance increasingly on pain to be stimulating. And then also pain sets us up to really desire the end of pain or the relief from pain or release from pain, right? And I think that might be part of it too. Uh, also, you know, just one last thing I think about, if she's creating pain for herself or has partners do it or that she's in control over, that's a way to take more control in a situation in which there could be a lot of feeling out of control or uncontrolled. But that's my thoughts. hundred words. Okay. Yeah, good stuff. All right, a couple more right there. Um, with what you've just shown us, um, a lot of negativity stays for a long time. Negative experiences stick like Velcro. Positive experiences fall off like Teflon. Um, more capacity to stay for long term. We're all sort of subject to the negativity. I think many of us are here because we've got so much of it. Now, I, might, I might be setting you up for where we're going, but what do we do? <laughs> That's what we do. Uh, I'll be giving you the $20 later. Thanks a lot. So he said very, very, very eloquently. I wish you'd all heard him. You know, um, you know, you know we're, we, we're, the, the brain is primed like Velcro for the negative, right? Positive tends to slide off. Doesn't always. The good news for most people, um, not all people certainly, but certainly most people, they're having a lot of positive experiences. So, you know, we got quantity if not quality, or you know what I mean? We get a lot of quantity of positive experiences. And there are some exceptions to the negativity bias. There are ways people that tend to be biased a little positively sometimes. That said, you're right. I, for me, I think... Um, in Buddhism, the fundamental root of suffering is ignorance, not seeing clearly. 
And for me, it's very important to try to see clearly how, this, how the causes and conditions of suffering in its end manifest in our brain, hardwired by evolution, very crafted by Mother Nature over billions of years, especially the last several uh, hundred million years You know, in this way. What do we do? To me, we stand up against that. We take, arms, take up arms, in effect, against our oppressors that live inside our head. Because we just kind of go along for the ride, particularly in modern societies, huh, we're in real trouble. You know? uh, this spiritual teacher I had, uh, who talked about being mystics on the deathbed, he said, this world will never be a heaven realm. Um, and, uh, but with consciousness practice, at least it's purgatory. <laughs> and without it, it's a hell realm in a lot of ways. So yeah, that's to me what we do. And, and within a few minutes, I'm going to segue into taking in the good, which is for me a preeminent way to start using the mind for the better. Okay? Okay, great. Are right, you? Um, Madison? I really appreciate it. Is that I, I really relate. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.